The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, um, you know, I often describe this show as being an oasis in a uh, very chaotic, crazy world. But then I, I often talk about things that um, perhaps don't seem like too much of an oasis, like, you know, when I go on about terrorism and get you concerned about it, break through your denial and all of that. Um, and, of course, today, by the way, 7-7 is the 10th anniversary of the terrorist attack in London. Um, that was where uh, my first my book came out, Coping with Terrorism, Dreams Interrupted, on the one-year anniversary of 7-7. I was in London at the memorial and so on. Okay, I'm not going to get into those kinds of subjects. Anyway, <laughs> um, and other things that I, you know, want you to tr- want to try to wake you up to. Well, today I have something that I want to wake you up to, but it's not as, um, it's not quite as, um, I guess, um, uh, I don't know, as as jolting as uh, some of these other topics. And uh, so I hope that today we will have an oasis of sanity in this crazy world um, with my guest Carl Safina who um, has been do- having an amazing life. Um, and his latest book that's coming out in about a week is called Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. And um, I have been reading uh, numerous things that Carl has written um, on his website and so on. And um, I love the, Carl, I love the, welcome to the show. I love Thank the you way... Thank you very much. I love the way um, you write about things that, you know, it, it reminds me of um, when I was a little kid and wondered about some of these things, you know, lying under um, a tree, thinking about, you know, wondering about animals and what they think and feel, <laughs> and, uh-huh. um, and, you know, what that means about, about humans, can we know what they think and feel, and so on. And and that's kind of where it more or less stopped. You, on the other hand, <laughs> have devoted your whole life <laughs> to uh, not just uh, not just what animals think and feel, but of course, ocean conservation and so on. Um, and right. so it's it's really like a you know like a fantasy kind of life that you have had, really being able to explore these issues that too many of us, you know, think about under a tree one day and never go on to really explore in any great detail. Um, Carl has, um, he's first started out mostly in the earlier part of his career looking at the ocean and how it's changing 
And he has, uh, in the 1990s, he helped lead campaigns to ban high seas drift nets, rewrite U.S. federal fisheries laws, work toward international conservation of tuna, sharks, and other fishes. Uh, um, he was involved in the passage of a United Nations Global Fisheries Treaty. He, and then he founded the Blue Ocean Institute in 2003. He has a Ph.D. in ecology. He's the author of six books, the first book being uh, Song for the Blue Ocean, and that was chosen as a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. Um, he's written books about communicating science, He's also the author of Voyage of the Turtle, uh, a children's book about the great whale rescue, The View from Lazy Point, A Natural Year in an Unnatural World, also a New York Times editor's choice, A Sea in Flames, The Deepwater Horizon Oil Blowout, and on and on. Um, he has been, he's considered or named one of the hundred notable conservationists, conservationists of the 20th century by Audubon Magazine. Um, he's done a, uh, he, he, now he's the inaugural holder of the Carl Safina Endowed Research Fellow Professorship for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University, and that is my alma mater, which is where I got my BA um, in, in psychology. And now also, uh, Carl is the co-chair and a teacher in the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook. And he's a MacArthur Fellow, and I could go on and on, but I won't because we all want to hear what he has to say. So, you know, I was reading a, a bit about your bio, and um, I, I guess I identify with a lot of the things that you've been doing or where you come from, starting with you were born in Brooklyn. I was born in the Bronx, grew up in Queens, and then, of course, went to uh, college in Long Island for, at Stony Brook, and you started in Brooklyn and went to Long Island and, and, uh, and have stayed in Long Island, I mean, other than when you've been traveling for your writing and so on. That's so right. I, I can relate to a lot of the things um, that you talk about. So how about starting with, because I think this is where it all began, um, as a psychiatrist, what else do you expect me to say, um, with your father growing or, or breeding or having canaries um, in your Brooklyn home. So let's start with that. Yeah, you know, um, most people who are born in Brooklyn or the Bronx don't exactly come into a world of nature, but when uh, when I was brought home from the hospital as an infant, I came into an apartment full of singing canaries, and I was mm. surrounded by birds. And then when I was seven years old, I pled and demanded that my father get me some homing pigeons because he told me that he had had homing pigeons and, of course, many boys like to be just like their dads. So right. um, he relented, and we fixed up an old shed in the backyard of our uh, Brooklyn apartment building, and we got some homing pigeons, and I started to raise pigeons there. And it always struck me that they were, in so many ways, just like us. We had these little... Um, nest boxes for them, and, and they lived as couples, you know, one couple to a nest box, and they raised their children, and that was extremely like our apartment building, where different couples huh. were raising their children. Huh. And I thought, you know, they're, they're just like us, except that they're different. They're, they're like us in a different way. Um, and then one night, I remember it was a summer night, really hot night. We lived on the, the top floor uh, four stories up, and it was really hot in the apartment. We had the windows open, and a bird flew in the window, I guess attracted by the light in the kitchen, 
and it was a, a wild bird. It was something that none of us had ever seen. And my father happened to have a, a bird guide of sorts. In those days, they didn't really have bird guides that, like we have today where you can just easily see what you have. Um, and he determined that this was a thrush. And it seemed miraculous to me. It, it's, it, it indicated that out in the black night, this miraculous life was moving through the air and through the night and made all of nature seem so wondrous and mysterious to me. And I sometimes mm. think that I appreciate nature so much as something that is so special and so easy to lose because I grew up in a place where it was so sparse and really you know, any inkling of it really got your attention. So it was nothing that you took for hmm. granted, certainly, but I had enough of it to whet my appetite, and it be it became a consuming passion for the rest of my life. Yes, well, actually, I mean, yes, you make a... a it's true that living in the city, it, it is... Um, it is rare, more rare, or it is... Uh, you know, you do pay more attention to nature than, I guess... You know, when I was growing up, we had a country home in, in Lake Mayopack, you know, a little north of yeah. New York City. I know exactly where that is. <laughs> and so I used to be there during the summers and, and, um, and uh, you know, weekends during the year. And my first, my fifth grade science project was backyard insects and butterflies. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, you know, so yes, we... I mean, it's so, and it's so important. I mean, I guess that let's not lose this point because it's so important, and you make this point in a number of your writings, actually. Um, it's so important and so much more difficult now, regardless of where children live, to, um, to make sure that they have enough experience and exposure with animals, whether it's backyard insects and butterflies or canaries or thrushes or whatever it is. I mean, we're, you know, I think that that plays a big role in why, so, why the world is getting more violent, um, I mean, aside from the violent media and so on. But I mean, because, because kids aren't, parents aren't making sure uh, enough parents aren't making sure that their kids have enough exposure to some kind of animal life, whatever kind of animal it is. Well, I, I think an extension of that is that they don't even have the exposure uh, about how to um, handle themselves because they're always being handled. When we were kids on the street in Brooklyn, we just played outside until our mothers called us from the apartment window right. and said, you know, it's it's time for dinner, or you go out after dinner if it was summertime, and then they'd they'd call you and time to come in, you know. And in the meanwhile, you fooled around and um, got into your social adjust adjustments with each other, and and had your little scrapes and things. But you you learned, you know, how to look around and how to handle yourself rather than always being chauffeured around and and brought into managed situations. Yeah. But specifically regarding nature. I was at a meeting of people who had won uh, a special fellowship in nature and conservation a few years ago, and these were called um, Pew Fellows, Pew Foundation Fellowships. And uh, somebody said, how did you get interested in nature? And that sparked a long discussion around a table after dinner. Mm. And the common thing was all of us had a place where we could play that was an unstructured area, 
And for some people, it was a big, wild place. And for me, it was a vacant lot where instead of an apartment building, there were just weeds and some bushes and trees. But when I was, uh, you know, five or six years old, that was a a jungle. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember the day that I got to the fence at the other street behind our house. It It was a big place, and it was an unstructured place. And that was the thing that all of us had in common. Some mm. some kids have access to little boats that they can splash around in, you know. But none of us said, "Well, our our mothers took us to the playground, and you know, when they locked the playground gate, we went home." No, nobody got an award for a life mm. that started that way. Uh, all these people had gotten into their own uh, situations, you know, and figured things out, and saw things, and explored. Um, if everything is managed and laid out for you, you can't explore, and you can't. If you can't explore, you you can't be open to seeing what's there. So, do you think that that was because um, these people, in their being able to explore, came upon nature, came upon animals, or do you think it was that they felt like animals in you know an unexplored kind of like a jungle? It was probably some of both. You, you know, I mean, I think that some people just have more of an affinity for different things. Some people have more of an affinity for nature. But if you have the affinity and no opportunity, you will never develop the capacity. Like, you know, some people have tremendous talent for playing the violin, and they, they never get their hands on a mm-hmm. violin. So mm-hmm. who knows? what? But other Other people get the gift early, and they can, you know, really develop it. Mhm. Well, before we get into um your Beyond Words, the book that's coming out in about a week Beyond Words, what animals think and feel, I want to because this goes along with that. I just want to mention a couple of a couple of things that were in the um newspaper uh or in the news recently, and I'm just hearing the signal that we have to take a break. <laughs> so we're going to have to come back. Um, there were some interesting things of like in Cal- I don't know if you've heard of this in California, a dolphin jumped into a boat, and in Florida, uh, injuring a woman in, in the boat in California, and in Florida, a sturgeon jumped into a boat and it killed a five-year-old girl. Oh and then God! T- no. Today there was um, a bear a headline: bear shatters glass at Minnesota Zoo with rock. <clears throat> Do grizzlies use tools? So let's just kind of use that as a jumping-off point to get into all of the studies and so on that you've been doing this that uh, that go that went into beyond words so we need to take a break um, my uh, my guest uh, is Carl Safina and we are talking about beyond words what animals think and feel so stay tuned you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and I'm your psychiatrist host Dr. Carol Lieberman Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the Terrorism Hotline. 
And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, which is the new book coming out by my guest, Carl Safina. Um, before the break, I was mentioning that there were these, it just so happened that there were these three stories about um, dolphins, sturgeons, and, and uh, bears um, doing things that seemed um, unusual to the people who were, who were reporting about them. I guess it comes to, brings up a larger question, though, which is uh, um, whether... I mean, whether you want to call it global warming or just various things going on in the world, whether um, you have seen, um, and, and well, I know that you've written something about this in Beyond Words, um, what, how do you think that the craziness in the world, from terrorism to global warming to, um, you know, whatever else is going on, every day it seems to be getting crazier, how this is affecting the animal kingdom? Well, the the warming, I, I don't think it's sparking crazy behavior on the parts of animals. What it's doing is it's pushing them around a lot because their ranges, ranges of many animals have a lot to do with temperature tolerances that they're adapted to. And as the temperature zones move, the animals move with them. So in the ocean, a lot of things are moving toward the poles as the uh, as the waters, you know, the temperate waters warm up, animals have to move farther north or uh, way south of the equator, farther south, to get into the cooler waters that they're adapted to. And uh, the same thing is happening across the continents, where many uh, birds have extended their range north, and many insects and beetle infestations that are destroying forests in the Rockies and in uh, and in Alaska, the, you know these things are all a result of global warming. But um, uh, as far as just you know animals sort of sort of getting psychotic, no, I have uh-huh. I haven't ever heard of anything like that. Hmm. Well, what about okay in Beyond Words? Um, you talk about you've you've studied particularly elephants, wolves, and killer whales. Mm-hmm. So. Um, right. In regard to the elephants, um, you know, one of the things, and this is something that is really awful, um, the poaching of, of elephants for, for ivory. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about that? Because, and I don't know if you think that the fact that there's been increased poaching has gotten an in, increased killing of elephants, whether that has gotten elephants to be more wary, perhaps. Well, that is, uh, uh, when I said I haven't heard about animals getting psychotic, that was in response to your question about global warming. But um, elephants who see their family get slaughtered do get 
what is essentially post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, this was first brought to light in a book called Elephants on the Edge. Uh, that's where I first heard about uh, this idea that the the neurotic behavior of elephants that are traumatized and the um, the uh, sometimes over aggressive behavior of elephants that are very that become very afraid of people and feel defensive or overly defensive is not just analogous to our human post-traumatic stress disorder, but is identical to it. And that idea came from um, the author Gay Bradshaw. And um, the idea being that the, that the older parts of our brain that, that, you know, bring us the motivations and the emotions and the emotional responses are essentially identical uh, among mammals. And the humans have uh, an extra thinking extension that give us human kinds of thinking. Other animals have their own kinds of thinking, a lot of which is, I think, rather similar. But many of our emotions are very, very similar. I think the experience of fright or rage or uh, in higher mammals like elephants, emotional trauma are probably identical because they act as if they're identical and they, they're certainly very close. So it, it's whether it is PTSD or not PTSD, what is clear is that elephants can be traumatized by watching extreme violence happen to their families. Their bonds are extremely tight, their emotional bonds, and when they lose their family members and their loved ones, really, um, their lives change, and the trajectory of their life is altered forever. And many of them uh, either become excessively frightened or some of the excessively frightened ones become very, very defensive, leading to them sometimes being more aggressive in encounters with people because they're trying to defend themselves or their families, where they don't feel that people are a threat to them at all, like around researchers that they know, and they get to know people very well, around researchers that they know, they're, they're never aggressive at all. You can, you can be in, in a vehicle with researchers and have elephants come right over uh, and, these, you know, these are free-living elephants that many people would be terrified by, but they're not at all hostile and they're not at all aggressive. They, they're, they're giant herbivores with 10-pound with brains, and um, they're not looking for any trouble. So if, if they know that you're cool, they'll be cool and mellow around you. If, if they think that you're threatening, they, they may retaliate. And elephants seem to be among the few animals that can actually plot revenge. If, if they mm. know that somebody is harmful or is a threat, uh, they may try to make the first move. And this creates all kinds of trouble because it, it, it becomes essentially like tribal warfare between people who harm elephants and elephants who harm people to try to avoid more harm to their own families. So it sort of becomes tit-for-tat in this uh, in this cycle of violence, so the current the current killing spree that is going on in Africa does threaten to eradicate elephants unless it is stopped. And there is some significant positive motion. 
towards stopping it. It was stopped around 1990 by a ban on ivory, and then catastrophically that ban was loosened up about a decade in, and uh, all the poaching started up again right away, especially in 2009 when uh, China was allowed to import some ivory, and that allowed all kinds of um, laundering of illegal ivory. Hmm. What's an example of how they plot revenge? Well, they, uh, uh, you know, if they if they um, see somebody who is acting in a way that is threatening, if they if they smell that these are the kinds of people who have hunted them, and they they actually can distinguish the scent and the language of people who hunt them versus farmers who don't bother them versus tourists who never bother them at all. And they will act totally differently. So if they feel that somebody is a threat, um, they may, in, instead of just you know continuing to graze or maybe moving off if they want their privacy, uh, they may decide that before those people get near them, they're, they're going to charge and they're going to try to kill them first. Mm. And that, that does occasionally happen. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, what, you know, you, you um, made the statement, if a fish, well, I, I'm paraphrasing, um, in, in talking about, like, the difference between elephants and some other kinds of animals or fish, um, uh-huh. you say that if a fish, like, like you were talking about, if someone kills an elephant, there is this mourning and this tremendous sense of loss and so on. But if a fish eats a herring... It doesn't change the lives of the herrings, the other herrings, like it right. changes the lives right. of the other elephants. Could you? Right. Uh, how? How do you know that? <laughs> well, I mean, if you watch animals and you understand what what their behavior is like, you know, you see that in in schooling fish, they are not defined by their relationships with one another in a- any way that is long lasting. Now, this is not true of all fish, because some fish actually have pair bonds and territories and things like that. I'm talking about fish like herring or mackerel that live in big schools in the open ocean. They, um, they group up, and on land some things group up. There are big flocks of birds that group up. There are things like uh, you know herds of wildebeest or things like that that group up. But they don't have specific personal relationships where they are known as individuals by individuals and relationships define them and define who they are and define their lives in a way that is, is how we live. So but how are you, uh, you, how know, are you it, able to tell that? Um, well, because you can, you can simply clearly see that herring are occasionally annihilated in gigantic quantities by things like whales or schools of tuna. They, if their lives depended on knowing their friends and family members, mm-hmm. everything would be shattered constantly. They... They couldn't possibly live like that, but uh, but elephants and wolves and primates and some birds, they do live like that, and um, it's it's a range. Some of some of them live like that in a in a, a very acute way. You know, like elephants, the family is everything to an elephant. With birds, some of them have long-term pair bonds, but not group bonds, and there, so there's a whole array of uh, kinds of relationships that these animals have, and people have 
I mean, there's an enormous, enormous amount we don't know, but we have learned a lot in the last 50 years, and there's a lot that we that we now do understand about the different roles of social lives and social groupings among different kinds of animals. Well, I guess that go oh, <laughs> another <laughs> the the we have to take another break, but I guess that this goes to the root of, and we should begin with this um, when we come back, to the root of what you did um, in, the, in studying the animals for um, Beyond Words, um, mm-hmm. you know, how you went about determining all of these inter, interpersonal, I was going to say, or inter-animal relationships, because mm-hmm. that's kind of at the heart of it. So we'll, we'll talk about that when we come back. Sure um, thing. My guest is Carl Safina. His book is Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about um, the topic, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. That's the title of a new book coming out next week by Carl Safina. Um, And I was asking you before the break about, um, you know, what your, how you started on this adventure and what you did, um, basically trying to show that although the word anthropomorphism was a dirty word at one time, some people saying that you can't attribute to animals the same feelings that we have as humans, you were were, um, proving that, in fact, you can. So how did you um, go about that? Well, I, you know, I've been watching wild animals my entire life and studying wild animals, mostly their ecology and and their behavior as well. And my real basic interest is what do animals do and why do they do it? And that's what I wanted to explore in this book. And most of my work has been about conservation, especially ocean conservation. 
But I just wanted to circle back to my original first love. What do animals do and why do they do it? And if you watch free-living animals, everything they do makes a tremendous amount of sense. They, um, they are not frightened when everything is peaceful. They're, they're peaceful and calm and relaxed when everything is peaceful. So the idea that we can't attribute our thoughts and feelings to them doesn't make any sense. They, they, we, we can make sense of the world as they make sense of the world because what they do is logical. Uh, things, are, things are safe, things are calm, the animals are relaxed. Well, how would you describe that? You could say they're, they're relaxed. Um, when there's trouble, they're on alert. When there's danger, they're afraid or they're defending or fighting. Um, that's the only way that we can make sense of what they're doing. So this idea that you can't attribute human thoughts and emotions to animals ever at all is illogical. And it helps us to reinforce our favorite story about ourselves, which is we are absolutely special and there's nothing else in the world quite as special as we Mm-hmm. And that just isn't the case. And so in this book, what I wanted to show is that we have a lot of company here on this planet. And a lot of it is really great, really magnificent, beautiful. And they feel and they have lives and their lives are very vivid to them. They know their friends. They know their rivals. They they have ambitions to higher status, their lives follow the arc of a career, they know their territories, they understand that they are separate from other individuals and from the environment around them. And in many, many ways, their experience is very much like ours, and we can use ours to understand theirs, because all life really is one. And the human mind came from the minds before it. So you know, only humans have human skeletons, but that, of course, doesn't mean that only humans have skeletons. We can clearly see that lots and lots of other animals have skeletons, and only humans have human minds, but that doesn't mean that only humans have minds. We see the workings of minds in the logic of the behavior of other animals, in the structure of their brains, in the chemicals that create mood and motivation in their brains that are identical chemicals produced by the same glands in their bodies that we have in ours. And I really simply wanted to show what other animals are like, because a lot of people don't have the luxury of thinking about this very deeply. And and I set off to dedicate several years to doing exactly that and going out with the finest experts in the world who have, in some cases, been watching the same individual free-living elephants or killer whales for 40 years. They have watched their whole lives unfold, and it's really super interesting. That's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the best way I can put it. It is super rich out there, but you have to go and look, and I've been lucky enough to be able to do that. And so, for example, these people who have been able to watch these whales or elephants for 40 years or so, um, what, like, what have they observed over these all, all these years? I mean, are they able to tell when they have happy marriages, for example, or yes, have very had sex much, the night very, before? You know, 
Very much so. They, they can tell you a lot about the individual personalities of these creatures, these individuals. They, uh, they'll tell you, you know, this elephant is very, very shy. This elephant is very bold. This elephant is really, really strongly bonded to her sisters. This one is flaky. The, the other ones don't really trust her to be a good leader. And even though she's the oldest, they, they won't follow her lead because she doesn't have good judgment. These are the relationships that are actually out there in the world. But most people would never get a glimpse of that. It takes literally decades to understand this. So, so these people have been able to watch, um, have been able to tell differences in the animals based upon what has been happening to them over the years, not just their personality in general, but like, you know, have they been able to see the impact? I know we, you talked about the animal, the elephants grieving as an example, but are there other examples of how, you know, how they've seen, just like as people, we, from one decade to another, or one year to another even, we change depending upon things going on in our lives. Have they been able to see those sure. kinds of... Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, and similar to humans responding differently to the same kinds of circumstances, uh, I mean, for instance, a, a, a wolf pack loses it. A wolf pack is a family. It has a breeding pair, and then the rest of them are the youngsters of that pair up to the age of about three or so, and then they leave and try to find their own lives, very very much like we do when we become adolescents. Um, one of the adults gets killed or dies. Uh, one pack doesn't miss a beat. They, mm. uh, they find a new breeder to come in. That, that new one becomes the alpha male or the alpha female, becomes the part of the breeding pair. Pack goes on. Another pack loses... One of the alphas, the, you know, the, the breeding male or female, the whole pack falls apart. Everything falls apart. The survivor can't cope. Same thing with elephants. Some families splinter apart when something uh, terrible has happened. Several members get killed. Uh, other families bunch up together. The survivors find each other and begin acting like a family, even though they're not related. They establish new relationships. So you see them coping with life. And... Um, Unfortunately, uh, you can see that in an accelerated way because we keep hurling such challenges at them, uh, often fatal challenges at them, and the researchers have watched them cope or, or fail to cope and, and can tell you what they've seen. What, for example, what are you thinking of? Well, as I said, there's some, some wolf packs. They, um, I mean, but what were you thinking of as far as, like, that we keep throwing... Challenges. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, well, the elephants, they simply get gunned down. The, the wolves get trapped or shot as soon as they leave protected areas or they, uh, they're suddenly taken off the Endangered Species Act and then uh, what was a sanctuary to them under law becomes a hail of bullets. Uh, killer whales are having uh, trouble finding enough food in parts of their range, like off of Washington State and Oregon. Uh, because the salmon runs are so incredibly depleted by all the damming and the logging and the destruction of the rivers, and um, they're un unable to uh, keep their babies alive. Well, there's a lot of infant mortality because of lack of food or because of uh, heavy uh, pesticide pollution and heavy metal pollution, because the, the Navy insists on 
dropping live bombs so they can practice uh, their insane warfare. And uh, they, they kill these animals willy-nilly sometimes. You know, they say, oh, we tried to avoid them. Oops, we made a mistake. Mm-hmm. A couple got killed. So uh, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, I, I, in this book, I really tried to avoid uh, talking about conservation. And uh, I couldn't tell a true story without showing how they're coping with the pressures that we apply to them, even though mm-hmm. most of the book is not about uh, the artificial pressures that we exert on them. Most is about their personalities and what we do and how we all are, in fact, very similar under the skin. But uh, I couldn't tell a true story without talking about the terrible things that they face because at, at every turn, there we are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you know, and, and when you were talking about... Um, I mean, about how people sometimes have problems seeing that or believing or that that animals do have some of these same feelings that we have, and yet we forget um, that humans, you were saying, like, people want, we want to think that we're special. We're above the animal kingdom. We're on the top, right? But right. then they forget that humans are animals. <laughs> so, of course, we have yes, the brains and all the other things that we've inherited down the line. Right. Right. We we tell ourselves a story about ourselves that, that isn't really true, which is that we are just uh, in a very special category and there's nothing like us. And um, we might be really afraid to die, but other animals, they don't know anything. They're not afraid to die. Well, uh, you know, imagine if a pig that you were about to kill started saying to you, please, please don't kill me. I'm, I'm terrified. I want to live. Please don't kill me. Well, that's exactly what they're saying. Uh, I mean, if a person, if, if you only speak English and a person is saying, please don't kill me in French, that doesn't mean that they don't value their lives. The pig is squealing and in, 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 in total panic, hmm. right? So it's, it's frightened out of its mind. And whether it has the same concept of death that people have is beside the point, because people's concept of death is, is very different from one person to the next or from one religion to the next. In fact, most people don't really have a concept of death. They have a, they have a belief in, a, in, a, in an eternal life. They, they can't conceive that they ever actually really die and stop existing. But that doesn't mean that we can't be afraid to die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, but, I mean, you, you're not really, and well, do you get into that? I mean, you're not really trying to... You're, I mean, um, are you like a PETA person? <laughs> uh, you're, you're fading out a little bit. I think. Oh, you I said. Me. I said, are you like a PETA person? You're, that's not really what you're. What you're, you're. I mean, are you? No, or no. Are you? That's, that's not. Uh, that's not what I'm about. I, uh, what I'm about is the, these animals' lives are really valid. Um, we need to leave them room. We're not leaving them any room. We're crowding them off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. They they want to live, and we not only do we need to treat them very much more humanely than we do if we're going to raise them and eat them, which I, I'm not a supporter of, but I, I'm not completely against that idea for everybody, you know. But I I think that uh, the way that we make animals live on these factory farms, these concentration camps, is worse than we make them die. We we have. We have more humane slaughtering practices than we have uh, 
practices to keep them while they're alive. Hmm. But um, no, I I I I have lots and lots of differences with uh, the organization PETA, and um, I, I don't I don't have a lot of overlap with them uh, on a lot of things. So. I'd rather not even go into that as a, okay. as a but, comparison because sure. the comparison but, is not but, really there. I, okay. I'm an ecologist. I appreciate wild animals, and uh, and I want to see them be able to stay alive on this planet. And for almost every other species, this is the worst time in millions of years mm. because their populations are at the lowest and are plummeting. We're... Um, We've occupied all their grasslands. We've cut down most of their forests. We've polluted the ocean, destroyed the coral reefs. I mean, it's incredible. And uh, they want to live. Hmm, okay. I, so I see what you're... I mean, and, and I was going to say, the more that you... I mean, since you have been studying these animals in such depth and getting into their emotions and so on and their family structure and all of that... Um, I mean, of course, you can appreciate them um, much more than the average person. I mean, they become so much more uh, like it's such a, a more emotional relationship. So, what what do you suggest for? I mean, I, I was kind of starting to talk about that at the beginning of the show, like about kids who um, you know aren't having the opportunity to. Um, to go to camp as much or to be out in the country as much or um, to, to have exposure. I mean, most kids, okay, their parents take them to the zoo, but well, what do you think about that as far as what, what impression that gives them of animals? Well, as, as a city kid myself, I found zoos, you know, really incredible. We went to the Bronx Zoo. We went to the Coney Island Aquarium. We went to the Museum of Natural History where nothing there is even alive anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I got glimpses of a world that I would never have known about. So yeah. I think there are a couple of animals that are not well suited to being kept in zoos. But well, well, let's, I, I, th let's... I think a lot of animals can be kept very well in zoos. And I think that they, uh, they're incredible ambassadors for the need for their, for their kind to remain alive and for us uh -huh. to let them live. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, let's continue with that when we come back. Um, we have to take another break. My guest is Carl Safina. His book is Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, 
check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest is Carl Safina. He's the author of a new book coming out next week called Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. We're talking about zoos and... um, and um, I, I, I feel kind of ambivalent about it. On the one hand, it does give kids, especially city kids, an exposure to animals that they would never see unless they travel to Africa or to some of these places where these animals live in their natural habitat. But on the other hand, it almost object, objectifies them. So what, what do you think about that? Uh, well, I think animals are much more objectified if you don't have any idea what they are like or who they are. If you only, um, I don't know, you know, if you know that elephants exist, then an elephant is really not even an object, it's just an idea. Mm -hmm. But if you actually get to see one up close, like I remember when I was a small child and we were at the Bronx Zoo, uh, we were up close to uh, the elephants that they had there, and those trunks would come slithering out through the bars. And you could see that this was a, a, a brown-eyed creature that was sniffing and smelling and was curious and was batting its eyelashes at you. And this was not an object. This, this, was, uh, this was a sensing creature. You can get into arguments about whether elephants should be kept at zoos or... Uh, can be happy in in zoos, and you can get a range of opinion about that. I think that it matters a lot how they're kept. I think they they can be kept happy. I think in 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 many places they have not been. They've been terribly brutalized. In some places, I think they're kept well. In the wild, uh, many of them are traumatized and are terribly brutalized. So the the question is not incredibly simple. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a, a couple of the very largest animals. I think that this is a serious question. I think with killer whales in captivity, it's a very serious question whether whether they can have a, a, anything like a normal emotional experience. But um, those aside, you can keep many animals pretty happy in captivity if you care for them very well and if they have... Uh, a really enriched environment, and they can move around a lot, and they can play, and they have, and they can socialize. And we've learned an enormous amount about how to do that compared to when I was a kid. When I was a kid, that uh, I mean, the, the big cat house at the Bronx Zoo was basically a concrete cell block mm-hmm. uh, where they could just hose it out easily. You know, they they thought that that was a good thing to keep it clean, but those animals were were bored into psychosis, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the birds were just in big cages. Now the birds are in habitats and they're, they're in mixed groups and they fly around and they can go here and there. Some of them breed in, in those captive settings. Those, those birds are not 
unhappy, and I think I could say that because having kept a lot of different kinds of birds, including birds of prey myself, or having raised some uh, orphan wild animals that we never caged and watched them uh, actually go free, fly free, and return. Sometimes I, I've had birds of prey that I that I had trained and lost, and they they came back to me. They hmm. they thought they had a pretty good deal. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, we've raised a couple of raccoons that um, wander off, and they keep coming back for food. They're, it's it's uh, Captivity is not simply a negative for all animals. Everything depends on what captivity is like for them. So uh, I was, um, I mean, one of, one of my most uh, in, important formative experiences as a child was I was at the Bronx Zoo, and there was a gigantic bird called a stellar sea eagle. Now, I was about five years old, so uh, that eagle would be big to an adult, but to a child, uh, that, that was a bird of mythic proportions, especially to a kid in the city. And uh, I happened to see that there was a stick lying next to its cage, and for some reason, I picked up the stick and I put it through the bars, and the eagle sidled over and grabbed the end of the stick. Mm-hmm. And now we're both holding the stick, and I tugged, mm-hmm. and the eagle tugged, mm-hmm. and I tugged back, and the eagle tugged back. We were playing a little game with each other, and we were both mm-hmm. on the same end of the same stick, feeling each other, experiencing each other, and, uh, you know, that made me think that this, this is not a totally alien thing. This is something quite like me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that happened in a zoo, and that impression never left me. Yes, I, I agree with you. Um... Uh, you know, I think that uh, that it's if you just see if you just read about animals or you just see pictures of them in books or even on television, um, it is certainly not the same thing as having an experience with them in real life. And that that and that in fact makes people want remember. Of course, what happens in your childhood stays with you forever, and it makes you uh, it forms as you just explained um, that your feelings for the rest of your life towards. Uh, towards animals and, and, of course, in general. Um, and having that interaction, even like you were talking about elephants, even like uh, feeding elephants. I remember being at the Bronx Zoo feeding the elephants or having an yes, elephant ride right. or having a camel ride. or right, um, right. You know, and, so, and it so was... Those things, those things are a mixed bag, right? And it, it depends a lot on how the animals are kept and how the animals experienced that and and a little bit about the history was was that animal caught in the wild and dragged away from its family was it born in captivity you know we do find ourselves in a certain place in time there are there happen to be wild animals in captivity now and some of them are breeding in captivity so all these things inform that question but another thing that has changed you're talking about seeing them on television is that when we were kids there were no really good wildlife films that mm. that was a craft that had that that had not developed yet. So to see an elephant in the zoo was about as much of an elephant as you were ever right. going to see, unless you went to the circus. Now, that's a different well, thing. Yeah. The circus, I think, was always always a much worse experience for uh, for those animals. And, and I, don't, yes, I don't think circuses I, you know, that's, are in the same actually, category. I'm, I'm glad, but, you know, um, Barnum & Bailey, was it? Um, one of the circuses has decided to not include elephants, and I think I, I don't agree with that. I think that these circuses should include elephants. Yes, you're right. The circumstances, because they travel and all that, aren't as humane as as uh, 
zoos, but that may be the child's only experience with an elephant until they grow well, up. I, I, well, in that case, I, I disagree with you there because I, I don't think that a zoo can, that a, I'm sorry, I don't think that a circus can provide an adequately normal environment for elephants. I'm talking specifically elephants. I'm not talking about horses and other things that you might find in a circus. But I, I do think it's really good well, that Barnum & Bailey has decided to retire those <laughs> elephants from that life. All right. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to continue this discussion at another time because, because we're out of time. Oh, but, okay. Um, my guest, again, is Carl Safina. His book is called Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, and his website is carlsafina.org. C-A-R-L-S-A-F-I-N-A dot org. And I certainly know that my experiences with, with zoos mostly, but I guess circuses too, brought me to Africa to spend a whole week on safari with elephants, which is like one of the best weeks of my life. So I really, uh-huh. once you do that, once you do that, you cannot even think about poaching anything. So right. thank you so much, Carl. I wish you all the best with your book. It's so important for us to get more in tune and appreciate um, these animals and to keep them alive in the world. Well, thank thank you. you very much. I really appreciated the discussion. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.